0: Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to VibeCast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. VibeBio seeks to find every cure for every community. We think big, as no one should be left behind in the pursuit of living a healthy, happy, and productive life free from disease. Collectively, we have the skills, we have the technology, and we have the passion we now need the Community Catalyst to bring it all together. That's Vibe. We see a future where communities of biopharma experts and patients collaborate to identify high-potential medicines and have the ability to access capital on demand to develop them. VibeCast is our weekly informational podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development and technology innovation with the dynamic people that make up the Vibe community. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. You can find us on your favorite podcast player and YouTube, as well as Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Sven Carlson. Sven is a venture partner at Ally Corp Healthcare Fund and advisor to Vibe Bio. He's an advisor to multiple biotech companies, and in today's session, he'll be presenting on the search, evaluation, and licensing process specifically as it relates to therapeutics and other medical technologies, with some commentary and questions from me. Sven graduated from Cornell with a degree in operations research and has an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. Sven, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Ray. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, us too. I think it'd be great if you can start off by giving the audience a background about yourself, and then we can get into the presentation.
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, So as you mentioned, I studied engineering undergrad you know, like a lot of people didn't have, like a lot of other people wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do when I graduated, so moved uh, into working in finance at JP Morgan for a few years. I uh, got my MBA, moved up to Boston, and after a couple of years, had the pleasure of co-founding a biotech company uh, with uh, two professors from Harvard, Jonathan and Joe. It's called Platelet Bio. Um, we went through and licensed uh, several different technologies there, so had the experience of going through the process a few times there. Uh, left a couple of years and have been working as a venture partner, as you mentioned, at Alley Corp. It's a healthcare fund. I'm specifically focused on the therapeutics part of the portfolio. And I've been uh, fortunate to work as an advisor at Vibe Bio as well. And I'm also currently launching a new company that's in stealth mode, but it involves a pretty heavy stealth and or search and evaluation uh, process. So I've been going through it uh, quite heavily recently.
0: Awesome. Thanks for sharing that.
1: Um, so should we jump right in?
0: Let's jump right in.
1: All right, so I thought it'd be helpful to start off with sort of a very high level, what does the search and evaluation process look like, Um, and really sort of answer the question, where do I start? You know, Vibe, we have the opportunity to interact with a lot of individuals who are touched by rare diseases. these might be the patients themselves it might be a family member or close friend and when there are no treatments or the existing treatments are just insufficient you know the question we most often get is sort of what can i do to help and there's sort of the standard things you can do which might be you know donating to the patient advocacy group uh, which is fantastic you know comfort and support to the individual themselves to help them through the 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 challenging period in their lives but there's you know a few people who want to go a little bit further and you know, really have the the audacity, I guess, to think that they can actually develop treatments themselves. And so that's sort of the purpose of this presentation is, you know, individuals who are starting down the path of wanting to develop treatments for rare diseases, you know, where do you start and what do those first few steps look like? And you know, to be clear, going from what can I do to help to an actual approved drug is an extremely uh, long and expensive process. But each step that you sort of move the ball forward, de-risk the process. And the more that you de-risk the, the therapeutic or drug that you're working on, the more likely it is that it's going to reach the finish line and the more likely you'll attract other people uh, and, and capital as well to sort of move it forward. The purpose of this presentation is to answer the following questions. How do you identify uh, possible treatments? How do you then evaluate these possible treatments? And when you find one that looks promising, how do you actually acquire, or in most cases, license a promising therapeutic? And hopefully this uh, encourages a few more people to, to move down the road. And maybe if we get enough people moving in the right direction, one of those will eventually lead to an actual approved drug. I think it's important when you start is to really identify, you know, what are your parameters? Uh, I think in most cases, people who fit the profile that I just mentioned already have a specific indication in mind. And when we say indication, that means a disease. So they have a specific rare disease that they or someone they know is suffering from and they want to find possible uh, treatments out there that currently aren't in development and move them forward. Um, Are you only seeking a cure or is symptom relief sufficient, right? That will change the things that you're willing to take a look at. Is there a specific time frame you're constrained by? You know, if you're suffering from a disease or someone you know is suffering from a disease and they might die in five, 10, 15 years, then getting something into the clinic within that period of time is extremely important uh, for you specifically. Versus maybe a typical venture investor who isn't, um, you know, constrained by that specific timeline. Uh, thinking about modalities that you prefer to work in, I think with rare diseases, we've seen a lot recently around uh, gene therapies, and gene therapies are very exciting and very promising, but they're also very expensive. I think there's still quite a lot of biological risk associated with them, um, and so thinking about other modalities that are maybe a little bit more established, like you know, small molecules, antibodies, peptides, proteins might be a more, you know, realistic approach to take. But again, each disease is going to be different. Um, And then finally, you know, what, if any, capital do you have to support your search, right? If you have, you know, a small amount of money that you can use to pay consultants, advisors, other people, lawyers, et cetera, to help with your process, that's going to make it easier uh, and a little bit faster. But if you don't, you know, you can still call in favors and you know turn over every rock uh, so to speak and, and and try and you know do what you have with the, the resources you have available and then i think most importantly as you go through the process is recognize that you're not the only one trying to do this right there's a whole community around each of these disease areas that are already trying to do many of the things that you're working on and so the more that you can leverage their work their resources you know make sure that you're not being redundant in your efforts Uh, I think the better for everyone
0: involved. Just to comment on that, I think this list is really great. These questions are um, essential for anyone getting started. And I think it's a great idea to start with the community uh, as well. So before you even start to look at um, the details of, you know, what modalities do we prefer, maybe starting off with that um, disease community, the patients with that disease community and seeing what exists, that would be a a great first step. Um, And like you said, People have done some of the work already. So rather than starting all over, having that group of people kind of explain to you what has transpired over the last few years in this specific disease area would would be very beneficial. So I'm with you there.
1: Absolutely. And I think at Vibe, you know, part of the thesis is that these communities have an incredible amount of um, capability and incredible amount of power. And if we can sort of unlock uh, that power somehow and enable it, Uh, then there really is uh, huge potential there. So once you've sort of defined your parameters, the next step is searching, really sort of making a list of what is everything out there that fits my parameters that is worth taking a look at. So again, patient advocacy groups, I think, are a great place to start. Uh, They're often already tracking everything that is in development. Uh, They may even be funding the research at universities for new and upcoming treatments and be getting data readouts on those frequently. Um, And so the more that you can tap in uh, there, I think that'll be a very fast way to start. Uh, You can also look at resources like clinicaltrials.gov to see if there are any clinical trials currently ongoing related to the indication. And there you can go in and and search specifically for the indication that you're interested in. You can also go out and read relevant publications. Uh, Go to pubmed.gov, search for the indication that you're interested in, it's a great way to educate yourself on the disease. Uh, and it's also a good way to sort of see who are the authors on these paper? Who are the co-authors, right? And sort of who are the different uh, academics out there that are working heavily in this disease area? And they usually have their emails on them on there, right? So send them an email, contact them, see if you can set up a short call. Don't waste their time, obviously. Uh, but the more that you can tap into people who are already very familiar with the space, I think the better.
0: Well, just on that point. So like when you do contact these authors, what are some maybe questions or things to ask that wouldn't waste their time. So just to help the community that's interested in reaching out, like what should they be asking maybe? You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think just asking them to explain the disease to you is probably not a good use of their time. Understanding where is their therapy in development? Is it something they're continuing to work on? Is it something they've stopped working on? And if so, why, right? Did they get a bad data readout that suggested it wasn't a promising path? Did they already license the technology to somebody else who's already advancing it? So really trying to understand where it is. And I think a good question is always, you know, who else is, who else is working on promising therapies that you think I should take a look at, right? So really trying to sort of have each contact lead to another contact that gives you a, a better picture of everything going on in the space.
0: Great. Thanks for sharing that. Uh,
1: another option is to contact leading clinicians. Again, uh, they are very busy. They're working very hard uh, to help patients. So don't waste their time. Um, but you may already be in contact with your clinician, right? And so talking to them and understanding who else is working in the field uh, may lead you to therapies that are not being developed that could be developed. Uh, and finally, the NIH has an incredible resource uh, listed here, the Network.org. Uh, they're tracking many of these rare diseases, you know, not enough. Uh, they wish they were tracking more and they're working hard on it. But for many of these, you can go on there and see everything that's currently in development. They have re- links to all the relevant papers in the space. Uh, It's a really fantastic resource to get yourself up to speed quickly. And then if you really want to uh, take the needle in a haystack approach, um, you can go directly to tech transfer offices. Uh, So technology transfer offices, for those who don't know, are essentially groups within universities that are tasked with trying to translate the inventions that are occurring at the university. So a scientist discovers something, they file some intellectual property around it. And the tech transfers job is to take that intellectual uh, property license it out to a partner who can then develop it further than it can go uh, purely within the academic setting Uh, so many of them will list everything that they they have available on their websites it's usually outdated um, but it's a way you know if you pick through and um, work at it long enough occasionally you will find things and if you want to narrow down the list of universities to look at uh, i would encourage you to sort of look at the publications again and see where is this science happening. And those are the universities where it's likely that you'll find something relevant to that specific disease.
0: Makes total sense. Thanks for sharing that.
1: So next, uh, evaluation. So I think this is where things get very difficult for people who are not scientists, who aren't deep in the space, aren't, aren't doctors to really do this without support. Uh, you are going to need experts to understand what is good science, what is good data, and what is not promising. Um, When you are looking at the data, the the science, the technology, there's a couple questions you should ask yourself. So first, thinking about the quality of the data, you know, is the data even published, right? Is it published in a peer-reviewed journal? What's the quality of that journal? Who are the co-authors on the paper? Are other people in the space citing this paper? All of these will be indications of how strong the science is behind it. Um, Getting further in the weeds, you know, looking, is it just in vitro data or do they have in vivo data? If they have in vivo data, you know, how many mice was it? Does the mouse model that they're using actually translate into the clinic? And you can look at maybe other drugs that have developed in the space previously and whether they use this model and whether those results ended up being replicated uh, in human. Um, Has the data been reproduced? Uh, I think is a huge question. If it's only been done at one university, then one of your first steps is going to be to reproduce it in a contract research organization or another setting to ensure that you can actually replicate the results.
0: And, and on that point, I know that's been a real big issue in biotech and, and science in general, the replication crisis that we're seeing now, where you know you have these publications that are out there in the open for maybe multiple years. And over the years, it turns out nobody can reproduce the results of the study. And that, you know, obviously is a, is a problem. Um, yeah. How do you see that landscape? Like what's, I know it's hard to find a solution for some of these things, especially when you're talking about really hard, uh, detailed, basic research science. But, you know, do you have any insights or comments on that?
1: I don't think I really have any solutions to it, but I would certainly replicate your sentiment that. Um, There's a lot of reasons that things might not be reproduced correctly, right? One could be fraud, but I think that's usually uncommon. I think it's more likely there are nuances to the mouse model nuances to the dosing schedule um, that just uh, aren't replicated the same way, right? There's more art than I think people would like to believe in science. Um, and so I, I think it's a huge issue. And certainly there's no glamour in going out and redoing a paper that somebody's already done. And so there's very little effort in the academic community focused on just reproducing results. Um, that's not how you get your name out there. It's not how you get tenure track, right? You got to go ahead and invent something new, publish a really exciting paper.
0: Makes sense. Yeah.
1: Um, so next, if you determine, you know, the data looks promising, this is exciting. Uh, I think the next step is really to think about what does the development path look like? Um, and by that, I mean, how do you get from where the drug currently is? Um, and it may not even be a drug yet. It might just be a target. It might be, uh, a set of hits, but how do you get from where you are to the clinic is usually the, the milestone that people are aiming for, Yes, you need to think about the actual clinical development strategy as well, but really thinking about, um, you know, what is the proof of concept required, you know, have you determined the delivery method, the formulation, you know, you're going to have to do a dose range uh, finding study, thinking about manufacturing, sort of all the IND enabling studies, all the things that the FDA will want to look at in order to approve this moving into the clinic. Uh, and IND is investigational new drug approval for people who aren't familiar with that. Um, And the reason this is important uh, is because it'll help you answer the question, you know, is this even ready to be translated, right? Or is it better off staying in the academic lab for another year, maybe funding it through a a sponsored research agreement, an SRA or other mechanisms? Um, But also, as you think about how are you going to fund that development to the next meaningful milestone? Um, And uh, I know we talked briefly about sort of what is the what does it actually cost to do this type of work? And, you know, it's really hard to nail this down because every indication, every modality uh, is going to be a little bit different. Um, but I, I did find some data on this showing that the average cost to develop one drug all the way through to approval is 280 to $380 million. And that's wow. for one successful drug. But when you think of the whole ecosystem, you also have to include the cost of all the failed drugs um, and, and sort of amortize it across that one drug. So if you include all the, the, the capitalized costs for a single approved drug, then the cost of the system is 2.4 to $3.2 billion per drug, uh, which is pretty crazy. Of course, a lot of that happens in later stage clinical trials. So you don't have to, you know, freak out about it up front, um, but the costs are meaningful.
0: Absolutely. No, thanks for sharing those numbers.
1: And, um, you know, finally, I think, again, if you want to fund that type of development work, you need to have some sort of commercial opportunity at the end. If you're going to be using traditional sort of venture capital um, or or risk capital funding models, right? If you have a foundation or some other nonprofit or government capital that's willing to fund it, it's a little bit different. Um, But if you're going to be relying at some point on risk capital to support it, then you need to understand what is the commercial market. Um, So understanding how many patients are there, how great is the therapeutic benefit that you would potentially bring, make sure you're doing sort of segmenting of the patients, right, a lot of times in these rare diseases, there are uh, different phenotypes of patients along the way. So really understanding what is the true size of that uh, market opportunity. Uh, And along with that, I think is the intellectual property piece. This is both from a freedom to operate. So are you able to, develop and sell this drug without infringing on somebody else's intellectual property, as well as the defensibility, right? If you go out and, you know, make this drug, get it approved, is somebody able to immediately copy you uh, and destroy your margins? Or are you able to have some sort of defensibility there through intellectual property? Um, Because again, that will go back to how likely risk capital is willing to fund the project that you're working on.
0: On that note, do you see often that there are situations where maybe a project is doesn't have much defensibility in terms of protecting its um, you know, intellectual property and they don't pursue the program, the drug program, because of that reason?
1: Uh, I think you see that. It's certainly outside of my area of expertise, but I think you see this a lot with drug repurposing opportunities where there might be an approved drug out there that may have already gone generic and somebody wants to run a study to use that same drug in a new indication which seems great, right? I mean, you already have safety data on the drug, you're already manufacturing it. um, So it seems like there's very little sort of downside to that. The problem is that that clinical trial is still gonna cost tens of millions of dollars. And if at the end of the day, all you do is have the clinician tell them to, you know, buy the -the over-the-counter medication, then who's really benefiting from a capital standpoint, who's really benefiting from investing in that clinical trial? And I think that's where you see opportunities with foundations or governments stepping in to pay for those types of trials that do bring, have the potential to bring significant patient uh, benefit, but no one really makes money off it.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point because I could see the societal benefits of doing that clinical trial. But again, there has to be someone willing to pay for it. Uh, and if there's no you know, ROI on that, they are probably going to avoid that project. So it's very interesting.
1: Yeah. And there, there are strategies around that, again, outside of my area of expertise, but thinking about novel delivery um, approaches or combining uh, different drugs together so that you have a unique formulation. Uh, things like that can create the opportunity to generate intellectual property. Um, but I think that's the area where I see the, the biggest challenge associated with defensibility. Interesting. And then I would just stress uh, strongly the last bullet on this slide that experts are definitely required to this. I mean, people will spend their entire careers working in some of these specific disease areas. And so coming in and and believing that you can really know the intricacies of the animal model, for example, without a, an expert sort of alongside you looking over your shoulder, I think is a little unrealistic. Similar on the IP side, I mean, reading patents is not fun and is a, a acquired skill. Uh, so ensuring that you have legal uh, representation that can read through that and really make sure you understand what it is that you're potentially going to acquire.
0: Makes sense. Definitely.
1: So back to the question around sort of, okay, so we know it takes $280 plus million to develop a drug. Again, a lot of this is in the later stages where I think most people are going to be hopefully acquiring these drugs is somewhere around the lead optimization stage or even near the tail end of that. So a lot of this early work, you know, hit identification, hit to lead, lead optimization is going to be done in the academic setting. And so you can see here the, the estimated cost for preclinical development is around $6 million, which I think is like a pretty fair estimate. My, my sense was sort of like five to 10 million for most drugs. And there are certainly huge exceptions and, and bigger indications will be more expensive, et cetera. But I think sort of ballparking that sort of five to 10 million number to get into the clinic and initiated clinical trials is a decent estimate. The other piece I would add here uh, that was mentioned in the study is that orphan drugs are typically about two thirds the cost of um, sort of traditional non-orphan drugs. Um, so they are a little bit cheaper, mostly because the clinical trials are a little bit smaller. And then also from a modality perspective, um, when you're going after you know biologics, uh, large molecules like antibodies, proteins, and cell therapies, they estimated those are about 20 to 25% more expensive than small molecules. Although I would say that seems like a bit of a big generalization, given I would put antibodies and proteins in a very different category from cell therapies. Um, so again, it's it's going to depend a lot on the the modality you're working within.
0: So just for the audience to understand, why would you separate out uh, proteins and antibodies? Uh, differently than, you know, for example, CAR-T technology or or cell therapeutics?
1: Uh, I just think they're much more developed at this stage, right? We've been making antibodies for decades and decades. Um, Cell therapies, you know, there's just not that many that have been successfully approved. And even once you get into cell therapies, you know, if you're talking about autologous versus allogeneic cell therapies, I mean, that's a huge distinction. Um, So it's just a a more um, undeveloped industry at this point or modality at this point. Uh, so, all right, so we've done the search, we've done the evaluation, we figured out that this drug or technology is super promising, it's really amazing. Um, you know, How do I now get my hands on it, right? How do I license it? Um, now, most people may think you just go to a university or a company and try and buy the drug from them or buy the intellectual property from them. Uh, That's rarely the case. Uh, It might happen occasionally with companies, but with universities in particular, it's almost always a license. And this means they still own the intellectual property. They control the prosecution of that intellectual property. If you stop developing it, in most cases, they'll be able to take that intellectual property back from you and then license it out to somebody else. Uh, So it is a bit of a distinction from acquiring the technology, um, but it's almost certainly the path that you would have to take. So once you've identified this uh, specific drug, you you can contact the tech transfer office, the TTO, or the business development team at the uh, company and essentially ask them to discuss licensing terms. Um, I would say expectations here can vary quite widely. Uh, If you're a company versus a university, it will be very different. Uh, It can differ based on geography. So Europe versus the US versus Asia. Uh, Terms can vary because uh, it's a top tier university versus a mid-tier university. Um, they may have different expectations. And so if you have a little bit of experience or have an advisor who's done this recently, you could potentially propose some terms. But in most cases, it's better to ask them to share their terms first and then work on that. And I would definitely, it was a small detail, but I would definitely try and use their term sheet template because if you create your own, you're just going to spend so much legal time marking up the template to a point that they're comfortable with it, as opposed to actually talking about the, the terms that are going to be discussed.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Start with their own uh, term sheets.
1: Yeah. And if you have some experience reading legal documents, you can probably get through you know one or two iterations of the term sheet before you need to actually pay a lawyer. As long as you flag that to them that you're not, you haven't had a lawyer look at it and there will be other comments in the future, but at least you can get to the point of, you know is there a a deal to be made here. Is there, are there, are there expectations so wildly off base that it's not even worth pursuing? Or does it feel like you're heading to somewhere that, um, you know, you can come to a deal and at that point you can pay to engage uh, counsel to help you negotiate it. It's great advice. And then, you know, after you execute the term sheet, you then need to actually uh, negotiate and sign the definitive agreements, which are then, you know, 30 plus page documents that detail all the, uh, specifics of the agreement and do take, again, a couple more months at least uh, usually to get completely executed. But overall, I would say the licensing piece of it is pretty straightforward. I mean, yes, there's a negotiation involved, but you know, if you can figure out the terms that work for everyone, it's a pretty standard process. It's just a matter of iterating back and forth and moving the ball forward.
0: And so like, typically, how many years is the technology... License for? Like, what's a typical sort of agreement? Typically, Uh, it it varies.
1: Yeah, I was going to say typically you're doing it for the entire term of the intellectual property, right? Because you're going to spend five years, 10 years developing it, getting it approved, and then you really only monetize it in the last, you know, five, 10 years or whatever's left on sort of the patent uh, lifespan. Um, And I would also highlight that for all of these, you're almost certainly going to want to be seeking an exclusive license, which means you're the only one who has access to the technology a non-exclusive license means that you can use it, but they can also go out and license it to other people, um, which may make sense if you're using it as a, a tool or a support function in the development of another technology. But if it's the actual drug itself or the technology you're planning to sell, then the ex- exclusivity piece is critical.
0: I have a question for you sort of related to this as well. Have there been instances where there's open licensing agreements where company or University has a fantastic technology and they just want everyone to use it. Does that? Yeah,
1: I would say that's definitely, um, I don't know if common is the right word, but yeah, you see that quite a bit, but those will almost certainly be non-exclusive licenses. So if they have a, uh, a unique mouse model, for example, and you know the, the, you want to basically sell those mice to other CROs who will then use the mouse for their studies. Or if you wanted to use um, IPS and and induced pluripotent stem cell technology, you could go to IPS Academia in Japan and go to their website, and you can see that they they tell you exactly what the terms are for everybody who wants to sign up for that. So in the license, uh, you will probably be surprised at how many different ways they are seeking to extract value uh, from the intellectual property. I know that I continue to be every time, uh, but there is typically an upfront payment. Uh, you'll usually see clinical and commercial development milestone payments. So for example, when you start a pivotal trial, uh, which is usually a a phase three trial, but again, it can differ for diseases, um, they'll expect a payment of half a million dollars because you've reached that milestone. Or when you get FDA approval, they want a million dollar payment. Or when you reach your first $500 million in sales, they want to $20 $20 million payment. So sort of milestones along the way where you then pay them. Uh, there's usually a sub-licensing income. So if you get the drug yourself and then decide to sub-license it to someone else instead of developing it yourself, uh, then they take a, a cut of those sub-license uh, revenues. There are royalties. So once you do start selling it, you'll usually have sort of a low to mid single digit percent royalty that you pay back to the university. If you're starting a new company around this, uh, which in the sort of model that we've been talking about today, you probably are, then they'll expect a portion of the equity uh, in that company or part of the ownership. And uh, finally, you, know, you may want to negotiate a sponsored research agreement in parallel. So there may be the first year of development work that can actually be done at the university, but you'll need to pay the academic and the university to do that development work for you.
0: This is great. Thank you.
1: And I think we can probably do a full additional webinar on building, or maybe a series of dozens of presentations. So I won't dwell on it too long here. Um, but some of the things just to have in mind uh, once you get through the licensing period is, you know, I think most critically is is building your team. Right, drug development's really hard. Things never go the way you expect them to go. Biology is really complex. So having a team that knows the space and works well together is absolutely critical. Um, you know, Again, you, you hopefully have sort of a straw man of what is the development path uh, to get you to IND, um, but really um, building towards that and fleshing out that, that Gantt chart, essentially that development plan, um, but really keep in mind the clinical development strategy in all decisions, right? So it's not just a matter of getting to the IND, it's thinking through, okay, how do we run a clinical trial and the, the right indication or right subsegment of patients um, where we're most likely to see success, uh, and making sure all your IND enabling work is also incorporating that in its thinking. Uh, you will have to raise capital at some point. Um, again, <laughs> we talked about these things are quite expensive. Uh, so understanding, you know, where you're going to get that capital from and beginning those conversations early. And then there's, you know. Like I said, a million other things. You know, will you need other technology in order to enable the technology you're working on? Uh, do you need lab space? Uh, which CROs or CDMOs, those are contract development and manufacturing organizations that you want to work with? Um, and really, you know, I, I stole this from uh, a website, uh, but essentially they had the the list of different things required to get to commercialization, uh, which again I think is just helpful to think through. Yeah, there's a long path forward, but if you can figure out the things at the beginning, sort of where to start, then hopefully you can de-risk these projects and move them one step closer.
0: This is fantastic. Super helpful. I think for anyone, you know, starting, trying to get started in this, in this journey. Um, Maybe you can share some of the common mistakes or failures that people make during this entire process from from search to evaluation and licensing. And then I know there's so many potential mistakes during the building phase. Uh, so maybe you don't have to focus so much on that part, but um, yeah, just to help people kind of identify red flags when they see them.
1: Yeah. I think there's a few and maybe they're fairly obvious, but I'll, I'll say them anyway. Cause you asked the question. Um, I think for, the one I think I see most often is trying to rush the search and evaluation piece. And often this is driven because there's, um, well, I mean, it could be driven because there's a patient who's at risk and you know you care about them deeply and you just want to get something moving forward quickly. But if this is gonna take five years to you know, make it somewhere meaningful or maybe three years or something to get into the clinic, then spending an extra three months or so to make sure you're starting with the right drug is well worth it. So I think really trying not to rush this process Uh, and make sure you're finding the best possible thing uh, to spend the next X number of years and X million dollars uh, is really important. I don't think the the licensing, I I mean, I think where you see issues on the licensing side, in my biased opinion, is more often the, the tech transfer offices having unrealistic expectations for what is possible to finance, particularly in the rare disease space, where the commercial opportunities are usually, you know, much smaller than what you see for non-rare disease indications. So I think those can really those can really hamper deals um, or even to slow them down with, you know, significant bureaucracy. But, you know, even for those situations, I think always remembering that there are individuals on the other side of the negotiation and those individuals are constrained by the rules of the institutions they work with and in almost every case the actual individuals themselves really do want to do the right thing and get these things off the shelf and headed towards patients so I think those are the the two obvious ones I can think of
0: yeah I know that was really great I appreciate that and you know I think this whole presentation and the answers to the questions I think was very valuable and informative so this whole was this whole experience was great and I I hope that the audience and community can benefit from it and learn from it, uh, especially because you've taken, you know, you've been doing this for many years so they can learn from, from your experience as well in that way. Um, Is there anything else that you want to share? I think I've asked all my questions and again, this was really amazing. And uh, maybe you can also share how people can connect with you on social media or reach out to you directly.
1: Sure. Yeah. I included my Twitter handle here at the bottom, right at the underscore Sven K. Um, I think the only other thing I would add is that this is a challenging space to work in. It is daunting, um, but it's not as hard as I think some people think it is from the outside. And I think one of the, again, maybe this is a a tip uh, or trick or something, but I think people get really put off by the complex vocabulary, uh, particularly in drug development. And you're working in specific indications and there are lots of acronyms and just slowing people down and asking them, what do the acronyms mean? What do the vocabulary mean that you're not familiar with, will help you really sort of uncover that it's, you know, once you dig in, you can really understand the science at a general level, right? That's not the same thing as doing a PhD and a postdoc and really getting into the weeds and understanding all the mechanisms. I mean, people who do that are absolutely incredible, because that's beyond me. But really, you can understand a lot of what's going on um, at a high level, if you just understand the vocabulary that's being used. So don't let people sort of you know, scare you off by using big words, I guess would be my, my tip.
0: That's great advice too. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it's better to take the time to understand something like fully instead of just trying to to rush through this process. And that, that goes for the whole process overall too, like you mentioned. So, um, you know, this has been a great discussion, our presentation, and hopefully people who are interested in getting started here can benefit from this. So really, Sven, thank you so much again for your time and looking forward to connecting. And if there's somebody right now thinking about, oh, how, where do I get started? How do I um, do this? Hopefully this has helped you. And if you have questions, the community is here for you. You're not alone. And you know, like you said in one of the earlier slides, reach out to the community. They will sort of help guide you and tell you where to get started as well.
1: Absolutely. Appreciate it, Rose. Great time.
0: You too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vibecast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share a review and rating on your favorite podcast player. If you're working towards your next round of financing for your drug development program, we'd be thrilled to connect with you and explore how we can offer our assistance. Check out VibeBio.com for more information. You can also find videos of these podcasts on the Vibe Bio YouTube channel. We look forward to hearing from you.